Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This time, we're back in the enemy camp with C. Derek Barnes, with a firm not one step back order from our cultural elite, Van Management. As we read the posthumously published reactionary rant, Leviathan and its enemies, by Pat Buchanan's main man, Sam Francis, who, writing in the mid-90s, was just about to stop dabbling in pretending to not be super racist. We connect Francis's judo-class analysis to current debates in Marxism trying to make sense of that middle layer between bourgeoisie and the proletariat that seems to have interests all its own. All right, we're back in the uh, enemy camp. We got Varn back in the swamp. We are looking at a posthumously published manuscript called Leviathan and Its Enemies, Mass Organization and Managerial Power in 20th Century America by a guy named Samuel T. Francis. Yeah, Um, this was a not one step back custom episode request. The rare custom enemy camp episode. Thanks to Gravesend Commissar for this spicy one. Yeah, this was actually really good. It kind of hit on some things that are maybe like some under-theorized developments in contemporary class composition that he's hitting at from the right. Another thing that's very relatable about this is the hint you get about this guy's lifestyle when you hear about the manuscript that was discovered. This is just from the intro. After his death in 2005, Sam's family generously gave me possession of Sam's extensive files consisting of two full-size filing cabinets, several portfolios, loose-leaf binders, and a box of 3.5-inch computer floppy disks from the early 90s. Sam kept meticulous records, including any year's worth of personal and professional correspondence, memos about conversation, a journal of notes on books he read, and complete copies of all his published articles, editorials, and newspaper columns. One of the portfolios, I discovered several files labeled with chapter numbers 1 through 15. And he goes on, Examining the box of floppy disks, I discovered one in Sam's handwriting. Leviathan and its enemies complete. It was dated 3-27-95 and contained word-perfect 5.1 text files that would become the contents of this book. And it's like, ah, the leavings of a crank. You know, yeah. we, the things we leave behind. Oh, God. May we amount to more than that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting that date, too. Um, just a little bit more about you know, Sam Francis in 1994, he was fired from the Washington times basically because he appeared at an American Renaissance conference and he got outed for that by noted, uh, racialist apologist, normally Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> so, oh, wow, really? Yeah. Damn, um, so Dinesh D'Souza is really, uh, is wow. that, that's what he was cutting his teeth on. That's how he cancel culture. I didn't realize. I didn't realize he was around that wrong. Yeah, that's right. This is absolutely a managerial cancel culture gone wild. Yeah, there goes Uh, there goes free speech. So Dinesh D'Souza wrote a column in the Washington Post in 1995 before this would have been saved on that file. But after he originally appeared in the conference, it pretty much ended Francis's viable career in formal conservative circles. He'd already kind of been blacklisted from the National Review, although he was originally kind of part of that world. But he was still in the like Pat Buchananite sphere. 
by the late 90s, early aughts, he was writing for like the Occidental Quarterly, which meant that he was an explicit racialist. And even places like American Conservative wouldn't touch him. Right. Yeah. Although people like Paul Gottfried and um, Hans Hermann Hopp. Hans Hermann Hopp or even George Michael. George Michael. George Michael, uh, not that George Michael, the the George Michael who's associated (laughs) with that canon. um, Um, Okay. Still considered him a major intellectual influence on the Pope, the Canaanite movement. So like he was sort of everybody's like dirty secret. When I was in the paleoconservative world, he's not the gateway drug, right? Pat Buchanan, Amcom Magazine, uh, to some degree, Antiwar.com. Maybe if you're coming out of libertarian circles, Lou Rockwell and Ron Paul are your gateway drugs. And then you'll find someone like Joe Sobrin and Sam Francis. And their early articles are very crypto. And then you'll start seeing them quoting Michael Lind, uh, not Michael Lind, um, the other Lind, William Lind. And that's usually a tell that you're about to get Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, for me, the breaking point was like a Joe Sobern column when he was demanding the Jews apologize for the Soviet Union. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Little does he know that most, most Jews were Mensheviks back in the day. Yeah. Anyway. Which is fascinating to me. Like, it's not even like Solzhenitsyn who, who occasionally would talk about stuff like that, but Solzhenitsyn was... He was actually really respectful of like traditional Jewish culture in a way that like these guys weren't. Huh. So he's like, once you get into the deep corners, you would find him and he would be your gateway to like real Nazi stuff like Jared Taylor, you know, that sort of thing. So he was one of those intermediary figures in the quote unquote proto alt-right. He has a much more pronounced intellectual pedigree though, than a lot of those other people. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. His tradition is a lot clearer who he relates to. I mean, he's basically writing in the tradition of James Burnham and Paul Gottfried. Paul Gottfried is still a respected paleoconservative columnist, despite even, you know, vague associations with Richard Spencer. Right. You could feel the Marxist influence on this pretty hard. He named checks, usual suspects like Antonio Gramsci and Herbert Marcuse, but he also drops Russell Jacobi. Yeah. That's a deep cut. He was well aware of Marxism, particularly for the nineties. Right. Yeah. It's instructive to think of this as being written in 95. So it was published in a Nazi press in 2016. Is that right? It was published by Arcos, which publishes a lot of the, quote, European New Right and Fourth Positionist. So they have plausible deniability on being Nazis, but it's plausible deniability. But yeah, it's the same press that publishes all the English translations of Alexander Dugan. It's the same press that publishes the English translators of Alain de Bonist and Guillaume Fay. They publish Avola. They, actually, if you've read Avola, Avola is only published by two presses, New Traditions, which publishes his mystical stuff, and his political stuff is almost all published by Articos. Got it. It's that publishing house. Wait, I don't know if I want to open this box, but wait, there's a fourth position now? <laughs> yeah, Dugan's position is sort of like this mystical Eurasianism. Oh, um, okay. Right. We read that remember, back in the day, Jake. You know yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I guess I maybe lumped that in my head with like third positionism, but yeah. I guess four, that's I'm right. Gonna, that's what. Can't remember that one. The fourth position is like Nazis without that's right. without that's right. with spiritual and geographical racism, not genetic racism. Yeah, I must have smoked that away. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's frankly, a good move. That whole period is just a big blank in my brain. Going back over this, I'm noticing it opens with a like the Friedrich Nietzsche quote, like. The values mm. of the weak prevail because the strong have taken them over as devices of leadership. 
It's from the uh, from the will to power. Yeah, the will to power, the Nazi posthumous forgery, or the uh, proto-fash forgery. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a forgery, it's collated in a dishonest way. Yeah, it's what everybody says Angles did. <laughs> yeah, and that does actually pretty well kind of summarize the, like, the implicit argument this entire thing. But one of the things I thought was interesting, because this does contain some kind of class analysis to it, but it starts with him in, like, in the intro opining, like, why is it that every right-wing attempt to like analyze the society just devolves into a structurally anti-Semitic conspiracy theory? And then he immediately turns around and produces another structurally anti-Semitic conspiracy theory where to just lay it all out straightforward he doesn't really have like a theory of capitalism what he has is this idea that the institutions of the civilization are getting bigger and bigger and partly i guess due to technological trends it's necessary to control like the growing masses of society and the growing mass of like technical complexity of the civilization and that produces the need for these technical specialists who become this elite class that then conspire to overthrow the old bourgeois class. Yeah, if you're looking for the causal roots of the theory, it's population-driven. It's massification. Right. right? It's, you know, there's just too many people breeding. I mean, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say anything close to that. He refers to, you know, just, there's massification. He does say much later in the book, uh, like, absent a mass die-off, this trend is not reversible. Right, right. It's got like Malthusian roots, essentially. It's, it's, it's Malthus this plus isn't capitalism doing plus Pareto this. plus, you know, we were talking off air about this, but it's something you do have to know that he's pulling from Burnham here. And Burnham agreed with Pareto and Robert Michels that the heroic stage of capitalism had built a machine that was too complex. And it wasn't actually initially based off of an idea of massification and just numbers of people born. It was the idea that the society, because it was so large, was hyper complex and needed specialists to run it. That's actually not even that debatable. That's Weber. And that's like really well accepted sociology pretty much across the board. So they take that and then they extrapolate from that, that in their opinion, capitalism was ending in the 1920s that Trotsky's death throes was actually correct. But what they were wrong about, what they thought the communists were wrong about, is that the communists would replace it. And instead, what had happened in all three of the positionary societies, according to Burnham, you had the dominance of a managerial elite. Burnham thought this managerial elite would largely come out of the military, which is different than here. And he also didn't think it was bad. He just thought it was a thing. (laughs) And so you just had to pick one. You picked the management that was going to lead to the freedom for the most people. That was Burnham's idea. Because Burnham didn't really see New Dealers as proper managerial society. Is that right? Well, he kind of did, but he also saw the military as a managerial society. So you were going to pick the kind of management that you thought would lead to the most liberty. Now, the thing about Burnham is like Burnham in the managerial revolution thought the fascists were going to win. Orwell calls him out on that in his essays on Burnham. And also, like, Orwell is highly influenced by Burnham, too. If you read right. the Bernstein articles in 1984, oh, it's yeah. actually, it's pure James Burnham. Like, the theory of the party is actually James Burnham. Oh, you mean uh, Goldstein? Yeah, Goldstein. Emmanuel sorry. Goldstein? Yeah, the, yes. the little pamphlet within a book. You know, his proxy for Trotsky that is outing the theory that the party actually operates on is James Burnham's theory. Okay, fine. 
Burnham writes another book a few years later, during and after World War II, The Modern Machiavellians and its current thing. I think it was originally called just The Machiavellians, where he goes through his major theorists. And it's it's Machiavelli, Sorel, Robert Michel's Pareto, and somebody else. But anyway, if you know your history of Italian fascism, you will tell that like, oh, one of those is a plausibly deniable leftist Sorrells who considered himself a Marxist his whole life, but also was a Mussolini fan. I feel like so, you lose points for that one. Yeah. Lenin was a Giovanni Gentile fan, so you have to be careful with it. Um, well, Mussolini was a Lenin fan. I mean, you know, it goes both ways. Right. Anyway, that's the background of this. And he's just assuming that people know this. The thing is, he disagrees with Burnham on some key things. And so it does seem to me that he just thinks massification is a given and it's irreversible, but it's also bad. And it's funny because it's like a very dumb way of describing, for example, monopoly capital, and in a way that's totally politically determinist. So like, in a weird way, it's both structuralist and politically determinist at the same time. So like the structuralist element is like, oh, this massification is irreversible because reasons, but also that massification leads to the need for more and more elites. It generates complexity. But also, like, there's no economic theory for why that's happening. Right. There's a part where it gets into antagonisms between the managers of a capital firm and the shareholders. And for him, it's almost a proxy for the antagonism between the, the old bourgeoisie and the management class. But because he doesn't conceptualize capitalism as this mediating agent, he doesn't see what unites those two interests of those groups. Like, he doesn't see how the old bourgeoisie becomes transmuted into the, this new management society. Like, it's right. all the accumulation and valorization of capital. The agents that do that change in order to meet the needs of the society. But you see how in this, he uses bourgeois in, like, a very narrow, specific sense. Yeah. And what's kind of useful about this is that a lot of times Marxists will lump this new group in as just the general bourgeoisie. And that can often maybe create some lack of conceptual clarity in that. You read about like the old 19th century bourgeoisie and you think about them the same way you think about the contemporary bourgeoisie, even though the nature of ownership in capitalist society has shifted and the nature of the capitalist class politically and, and in terms of management has shifted as well. And so sometimes, you know, we can't just conceptualize the capitalist class as like the old, you know, like fat guy holding two bags of money and wearing a top hat. <laughs> you know, it's different. Right. Uh, you, have, right. you have diffuse ownership. You also have like diffuse risk. A lot of these people have a boner for like the heroic period of capitalism. And like, you know, when libertarians describe capitalism, for example, that's basically only ever true in England and the United States and Germany and France from like 1840 to like 1880. And that is it. It's pretty much already dying by the long depression. We should probably like lay out what his theory is because basically it's a theory of periodization of capitalism, you know, based on massification, which leads to the necessity of technological management of like lots of people in mass right. organizations. Right. And in part because of this structural feature. And in part because of the development of mass organizations at all, the elites of the mass organizations actually displace and make subservient the bourgeois elites. This book relies on a hard division between the traditional bourgeoisie and managers. 
managers is clarified to not specifically just be executives, but I guess in my own words, it would be something like those that wield organizational assets over large groups of people. Right. right? And his version of the category is maybe like not as like well-defined. Might want to get in that later. But the point is that once mass organizations develop, the managers who are not necessarily in charge, they're not necessarily the executives of these mass organizations, but they have social power because of the mass organizations. They have a sort of narrow despotism that allows them to deepen the managerial interest and generalize it and present it as the universal interest. Right. There was a mention earlier about this thing being much more politically determined than it appears outwardly. But to me, that's also maybe another aspect that's useful of this text in that it gives you a very clear portrait into the right wing mindset now in terms of how they mm. can see themselves as not being of the elites, even though you know the guy they back for president is Donald Trump, you know, or right. how they can right. the, the way that they conceptualize the manner in which liberal society is brainwashing the young people, because for this guy, the old bourgeoisie is this repository for all of these values of traditional stable society. Protestantism, essentially, like hard work, you know, family, your aesthetic and your like values are sort of in lockstep. Like the way you present yourself is an extension of your virtue or something. This kind of absurdly idealized vision. Right. Yeah, I'll read I'll read exactly what he yeah. says on this. The the social, economic, political, and moral order of both the bourgeois and prescription societies was small in scale, local in span, individualized or particularistic in structure. So I, I read that specifically because he's actually guilty of what Christopher Lash complained about, like the the quote unquote conservative appealing to the working class in the 1980s were, which is like their traditionalism was a rugged individualism that actually was both localist, but highly individualistic and was not actually all that traditional, even in America. So he accepts that. Indeed, the characteristic, and I'm reading from him again, indeed, the characteristic and dominant ideology of the bourgeois order was a form of individualism, the belief that the individual was a moral agent, economic actor, and citizen on the basic and proper unit of society. An individual was reflected in bourgeois institutions. Bourgeois culture, Raymond Williams, is, is individualist idea, and the institutions, manners, and habits of thought and intentions proceed from that. And as much as I know a lot of us like Raymond Williams because he's a clear writer, I also think Raymond Williams is basically guilty of believing the way the bourgeois presents its own myth as bourgeois culture, because I don't think that's what bourgeois culture really is. But that irreconcilable difference is what Samuel Francis is trying to understand. And he does, and particularly as later in life makes clearer, understand this along racial terms. He right. basically sees this as a wasp phenomenon and that its dilution is from elites. And there's an implication that it's, Japanese and Jewish elites. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, you so, could you could see that like this guy wakes up in a cold sweat at night, like with just visions of like the salary men with like their collective corporate culture, you know, like overturning like the the brawny American wasp uh, capitalist <laughs> individualist. Yeah, we also got to remember the 90s. I mean, you guys remember that weird Michael Crichton movie that was basically this in movie form and it was super racist and had Sean Connery in it. I think it was called Red, uh, was it Red Sun or Rising Sun or whatever? No, oh, I think I heard of that, but we had to watch it. <laughs> yeah. So like I grew up in this time period and I remember that being common. You know, 
the Jewish part was not stated though. And like, as a you know, person of partially Hebraic heritage in the South, I, I probably wouldn't have been noticed any anti-Semitism because I, I thought all this, that stuff was over. Um, mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. in in the North, I kind of thought that stuff was <laughs> over too. Actually, it seems a little more anti-Semitic now than it was then actually. Yeah. Well, anytime you see somebody railing about cosmopolitanism, you can probably be sure you're going to find like something in there. It's interesting reading his intro. Do you guys count the number of left-wing references he makes? Like, it's a ton. It's like, a lot. It's You got Gramsci, Wayman Williams. He's actually citing a whole lot of Marxists in his description of bourgeois society. But he's like, well, the Marxists are right about what bourgeois society was. But it was really great. <laughs> and it's dead. And, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, he's a little jealous. Like most right-wingers, he sees, like, the cultural gains of the left in the United States. And that's all he sees. And so he thinks... Oh, you know, if we have our own like solid base theory, we can develop our own like Gramscian basis with which to like retake the culture and restore, I guess, whatever, whatever he thinks was lost here. So, yeah, he looks over at kind of the Marxist tradition and wants that for the right. But if, if that's even possible, he's certainly not the person to do it. So it's interesting to me because his romanticization of early bourgeois culture reminds me of, for example, the Nazi romanticization of effectively mercantilist culture. Because if you guys remember, like in the Nazi conspiracies and going actually going back to the protocols of elder design and the czarist conspiracies, the Jews were blamed not only for communism, but also for capitalism and for capitalism's effect on like the burger merchant society that had died in the unification of Germany. So like there are parallels to Nazi stuff immediately if you read askance as to the different periods you're romanticizing. Part of the antagonism, too, is he talks about how the old bourgeoisie, because their society was based more on the direct ownership of property that was theirs, like a factory or land or whatever. They were more committed to the realm of consistent law, whereas this new managerial class is much more technocratic and whatever is correct is whatever works right now. And we can change it later if necessary. And to me, this gives a lot of insight into the way, again, that the right sees things now or they see. He even like, talks about how the elites, the managerial elites are basically stirring up stuff with like the gays and the blacks and all this other things in order to corrode the basis of bourgeois society in order to further assert their dominance and control over society. And later on in the book, he talks about the way that the new left was incorporated into, into this managerial project. And politically, there is some truth to this. What this kind of reminded me of was the PMC distinction, mm-hmm. which in a way, the PMC thing, I, I felt was more useful as a political explanation than as an economic one because it seems like in the united states with the democrats and the republicans what you're looking at is a split within like the ruling class to a lesser extent but more between the middle layers Mm. where the petite bourgeoisie tends to gravitate towards the republican banner and the democrats kind of get what eisenreich calls the pmc but i guess in eisenreich's conception like the pmc is more distinct as a class aaron right yeah. Aaron, so I keep saying Eisner. I don't know why Aaron Reich. It's more distinct as a class than it would be for this guy. What he's looking at more is an amalgam, I think, of management. At a, to what extent actually does he see man? Like how low level does management go? I see this more yeah. as like CEOs and the people who basically have command over capital, but do it in the modern technocratic way of right. managing these large firms that are so global. I think he'd be talking about the top twenty percent, and there's a reason why I think that which is still a large part of the population, but he does see, for example, he sees the enemies of this Leviathan as skilled laborers 
siding up with the petite bourgeoisie who have structural interests and like a little state interference because their profit margins are so low. Although he doesn't right. describe it that way. And in that way, he sounds like the contemporary, like centrist thinker, Michael Lynn, who wrote the new class war, who see, he talks about the battle of the overclass, which is really in his mind, the upper middle class, which is still like 30% of the population, but it's the professional class, which is largely dependent on the state and on academic institutions versus the petit bourgeois, which is mom and pop shit and the Sun Belt, with the high management and then implied the actual bourgeoisie picking sides depending on what's economically more viable on a business cycle, which is a more thought out theory than what you get in here. But it's similar. Yeah. So I feel like this theory for me really falls apart when he makes it clear what he means by manager. It, relatively clear, I should say. He has a chapter, subchapter, the definition of the manager, clear that you know, Burnham doesn't mean management in a narrow sense, like executive. He's talking about it in a more broad and functional sense. And so he says, management, therefore, may be defined in reference to the modern corporation as the body of technical skills necessary for the operation and direction of the mass corporation. What Galbraith calls the mature corporation in quotes. Oh man, every time he cites Galbraith, you could just feel him like boiling anyway, which is itself characterized by the dramatically large size and scale of its assets, plant, labor force, research, production, distribution, and marketing functions, and the large size and scale of which functions typically involve a high degree of complexity, technicality, and specialization. Management in a broad sense thus includes not only the managers in the narrow sense, of those who perform executive functions, but also the technicians, scientists, researchers, engineers, economists, lawyers, and social scientists who perform the specialized functions necessary to mass production and distribution. Later on, he also adds uh, exchange and communication. So to me, like this actually suffers from the same problem as the, like my problem with the PMC thesis is the PMC thesis does explain something we see politically, but explains nothing really economically because professionals and management and petite bourgeois what that encompasses is like 40 percent of the economy and they have vastly different functions and that's in pmc this is almost as broad like lawyers are part of management like when you read burnham burnham is referring to like the military hierarchy and stuff is also part of management but it's not every officer in the military it is clearly a leadership core and the other thing that's interesting to me is and burnham is not excluding executives from this they're like the top management. Whereas yeah. for s- somehow in uh, Francis, top management is more like the actual bourgeois. But th- why Why would they be? I mean, like if you actually know how like corporations are structured. <laughs> I don't know. I could see that because they are very well compensated. And you could say hypothetically, if you get this Horatio Alger management guy who comes up through the company and to become CEO, he will be vested in such a way that he is basically a part of like the big owners. Okay, that's true. But if you do empirical sociological studies of the politics of executive management, they're almost always more left wing than middle management. <laughs> like, 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 for example, when I worked at large unnamed insurance corporation owned by Warren Buffett, <laughs> Warren Buffett was always writing like anti-Bush policy papers into his stock reports <laughs> about how like marginal income taxes were too low and he, of course he could pay them. And like, my managers hated that shit. (laughs) So, so like that's anecdotal, but there actually is evidence of this. If you describe like, for for example, the politics of Jeff Bezos 
or even right. Zuck. It's not that it's anti-conservative. In fact, there's probably some ways in which it's pro-conservative, but it is not nearly as conservative as the way Samuel Francis wants us to believe it is, that they're really like the bastions of the old bourgeoisie who don't want state interference. They don't care about state interference. They have enough money that it doesn't matter on margin. Mm. So like when you talk about like, why would Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and all those people not hate high taxation? Cause they don't, well, they have so much money that the high taxation wouldn't matter. It's actually people more in the intermediary, which that hits. That's also interesting because that's one way right-wing thought has changed. Listen to Alex Jones show, which I don't suggest people do, <laughs> but I, I actually listen to a show that processes it for me. And the enemies are Bezos, Bill Gates, um, of course, Zoros, he's a Jew. It's all these executives. So this idea about the executives being against like the, the management of fiduciaries that you do see that in like this idea of the politicos versus Trump or the deep state versus Trump. But what you don't see that idea in the way they treat corporations, whereas like they see a lot of these corporations as implicit. Now, modern forms of this theory that aren't totally stupid, and most of them would be would talk about the, the fact that they would pick up on recent left-wing research on fiscalization as a third phase of monopoly capital and imperium, such as like Grace Blankley's work, and point out that a lot of these corporations, you know, are, are pro the state because, you know, it is basically a class state and like there's all these fiscal capital flows going into it. There is actually a divide between like manufacturing capital versus fiscal and rentier capital. And I have heard right-wingers pick up on that. But that was not in the 90s. So when people talk about how this feels pertinent to now, and in some ways it does, like those dynamics, he's not seeing. And they, I guess they wouldn't have been as obvious yet. Like we haven't started trying to move everything to a rent model. Crucially, like this is right as the computer revolution is starting to turn its wheels. And he makes some cursory comments on it, but he didn't really see it bear fruit. Right when this book was kind of saying something to me that was interesting was when I was thinking about these top executives. And as soon as you move away from executives having some kind of divergent interest or something, then, you know, it gets less interesting and less plausible because like, for instance, amazon.com ran for 14 years before turning a profit. And in Silicon Valley, it's perfectly normal to run a company at a loss for a long fucking time. And the survival of venture capital and government contracts, actually. In hopes that it will someday be profitable. Uh, you need to add that government okay, part back right. in because it's important. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's, that's definitely important. But the point is that this does function very different than classical bourgeois profitability. And the decision-making process is much more about organizational continuity, keeping it going and expanding than it is profitability at first in the short and perhaps medium term. But the reason that this developed is because of its long-term potential for market domination and profitability. Like, so the idea that this was just a cynical like power play due to massification and there was no, it has no tie to profits is like nutty. Yeah. And this is where I think you're right, Jake, because he's picking up from Burnham and Burnham to me, Burnham is actually the person who's actually insightful here, but he's also wrong a whole lot. Like, Burnham predicted in the 1940s that all of our managerial elites were going to come from the military and like we'd have Eisenhower's forever. Mm. And basically we had Eisenhower and then we didn't ever had anything like that ever again. These theories tend to be what I like to call negatively empirical, meaning they look at things as they exist at the time and kind of try to systematize them in a very 
strict way, but without doing a kind of regression like Marx does in Capital, in a way that lets a lot of stuff kind of stay unquestioned. Like, mm. even when you look at someone like Michael Lynn, who is not a racialist or anything like that, I think he's a moderate of some variety, and like socialist publications will even run this stuff. And I, I, his book, The New Class War, is worth reading. But they basically act like the manufacturing portion of the economy, the commodity portion of the economy does not need to exist. And they talk about how it's shrunk. But they don't talk about the fact that, like, the United States still is the second largest producer of physical commodities on the planet. It's just a very low employment sector. And it has a very low profit margin. But without it, nothing seems to work. And because they don't look at that at all, they just look at kind of the superficial class structure of the time. It doesn't really go anywhere. And the other thing this does is I think you're right to note that this is kind of a structural form, you know, an almost Althusserian structuralist from the right view of conspiracy culture, because in some ways I actually agree with the idea that, for example, you know, Mark Fisher's famous saying a lot of things that we see as conspiracies are actually just class interests operating. I think that's true, but this actually is neither that broad nor that coherent. Because who is management? And we know by implication it's, it's the Japanese and probably Jews and maybe a few trader wasps. And who is everybody else? Well, the underclass is like blacks and homosexuals. And there's this theory that the elites are obsessed with the lumpen and that the working class is de-skilled. Which, by the way, as a side note, even as a socialist, I do think anecdotally often looks true. Like. Mm-hmm. It's very easy, for example, to get college-educated people to really care about homeless people, but not to care about the working poor. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a way in which that seems superficially, or I mean, I may, I don't think superficially true, but it's not really descriptive of a larger class dynamic. Like, why is that happening? Because the managers want to use the working poor to gain power? Yeah. Or, no, like, yeah. Yeah, George, George right. Soros is funding Black Lives Matter to burn down these Democratic people's city, you know, like. That's yeah. that's literally yeah, yeah. how they think even now. The, right. you know, the Jews are funding Planned Parenthood to uh, invent new meliorization and utopianization like schemes to insert managerialism into places that it shouldn't be and making problems where there were none before. It's just manufactured. I mean, you know, this guy doesn't comment on trans politics, but if he thinks like, you know, segregation is, you know, not like a problem that needs to be addressed by management. I could hardly imagine what he'd think of, you know, puberty blockers access or something like. <laughs> yeah, luckily, luckily for your sake, he died in 2005. Score. Um, so. um, he does kind of hit on something in that historically, the more managerial technocratic people have been able to be a little more flexible on these kind of issues and tend to be yeah, more open minded and cosmopolitan than maybe more provincial like bourgeois elites were of old. And they are more capable of rationally managing mass society and that you know they don't have to resort to you know like the heavy-handed tactics of again like the early bourgeois in the midst of localized class struggles mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that all of these antagonisms are things that they're just driving in order to further flush out and destroy the previous noble bourgeois class <laughs> that are the foundation of a stable society right yeah one of my right-wing friends who i'm not going to name here because you know but told me the difference between me and him, the only real profound difference was that I believed in systems and he believed in individual moral agents. Yes. Um, and so he's also given to conspiracy theories, whereas I am gearing to, you know, to like structural logics and dynamics. 
And to me, this is where this comes in. This tries to take the conspiracy theory mind because the idea that the managerial class is using the underclass to destabilize, like how, particularly if you take out the executives and the very, very high forms of power from this. And that is different than the Alex Jones mind, because when Soros is funding it, you got the executive managers involved, right? But if it's just Soros's, you know, it's CFO, like, like, it's like, like, yeah, like distant middle management, dude, with like five people under him. I don't know. Or, or you know, command of a mass organization. I mean, which, you know, means quite a lot of things. I guess we should specify that he's got a tripartite theory of the mass organization. The first one you get is the corporate capitalist firm. And then the corporate state develops in parallel to that. And then you have the broadest and weakest section of this theory is the intelligentsia and the cultural mass organization stuff where, you know, basically anybody who makes their living, you know, speaking, thinking, and doing research is part of this elite. But also Uh, everyone who does television is part of the same elite. Yeah. And yeah, education and law. Right. Law is put in this category, which really that blows my mind because you have a whole organizational bureaucracy in the state that you could, you know, place lawyers in, but instead he shoves them in there. Why would you do that? Except that normally rhymes with the associated professions of a couple of immigrant groups who were (laughs) not traditionally considered white and are considered white now or white adjacent or model minority, i.e. Jews, Asians. <laughs> I mean, like, right, yeah, like, yeah. like those are the professions associated with that. Yeah. Basically what you have to do in order to like make this make sense because it it's coherent to a degree, but until you make this mental substitution by, Oh, by like, you know, trad bourgeois, he's talking about wasps. And then by, you know, managerial elites, he's talking about this like off-white horde. You know, they're not Aryan enough. Like he's not even really talking about people of color. He's talking about all the new assimilated immigrants, you know, Jews, Italians, and Irish. This only really becomes somewhat explicit when you get to the chapter on the critique of the managerial revolution. And there's three objections. What separates him from Burnham? Let's talk about that because that's actually yeah. really interesting to me. Because I also think that's when his when his racialism shows and some yeah. other stuff. No, no, that's exact. It's when his racialism shows. It also shows that it's clear that he's recapitulating Burnham up to this point, and here he's trying to make an original contribution. And its argument is like, especially up front, pretty fucking weak. So. There's three objections to uh, Burnham's theory of the managerial revolution. There's the power elite objection, the pluralist objection, the entrepreneurial objection. So let's go to the power elite objection first. He picks the antagonist C. Wright Mills and his disciple G. William Domhoff. So this is an attack also on radical liberal sociology too. So let's put that out there for people who don't know this. Yeah, so Mills held that the recent social history of American capitalism does not reveal any distinct break in the continuity of the higher capitalist class. The main drift of the upper classes points unambiguously to the continuation of a world that is quite congenial to the continuation of the corporate rich. Although Mills perceived and acknowledged that managerial functions in large corporations were necessary to the economic interests of the modern property class, he argued that the managers were drawn from or became assimilated into the property class or upper class or property elite terms largely interchangeable in Mills's theory. I think it's interesting that he 
focuses on the continuity of the people because that's where his racialism starts to show. Uh, he, <laughs> he ends up talking about how there's a, a study put forth by Domhoff that is like, well, you know, 30% of the new elite are, you know, drawn from the same pool as the old elite. And he flips it on him. He's like, yeah, but like, that means 70% are drawn from the underclass. And he makes this point by, <laughs> by like looking at the last names in the social registrar and pointing out how many Jewish and Polish and <laughs> European and like off-white names there are there now and how sullied his, you know, wasp pool is with Jew juice. Um, <laughs> which like, it does follow in that argumentation, but the fact that he chose the continuity of the group and not class interest as like the opening salvo tells you a lot of what you need to know. Right. And, and it also assumed that like there were no Jews amongst the original property elite too, which oh, is actually kind of funny. Of like, Of course. <laughs> what I think is really interesting is the continuity is very much not the objection. The objection is it's not that the managerial elite, you know, dominated the big bourgeoisie into capitulating to managerial interest all while screwing the proper trad bourgeoisie. No, it's that it's always been sort of overstated how much the big bourgeoisie and the tiny ass bourgeoisie have in common. Because once you get to a certain level of success and centralization, you have a sort of like emergent big bourgeois interest. And guess what? That's the real bourgeoisie, what the big bourgeoisie's interests are. And the fact is, managerial society emerges to manage their interests. Right. Yeah. That's the whole point. That's the big objection. And he just sees the convergence, the very fact of the convergence, as being unambiguously pointing to managerial domination. Because, well, I mean, they hold, they're hold they controlling the company. It's kind of like the argument that Arno Myers made about the ancien regime not really going away. They just became part of the leadership of the bourgeoisie. And, and inciting, like, see, that's how the bourgeoisie defeated them, was allowing 30% of them to become bourgeoisie themselves, and that's how they won. I mean, that's a weird takeaway, but that seems to be Francis's takeaway, right? Like, if Arno Mars argued that about the Ancien Regime, that's how really the bourgeois won was by assimilating them. Like, I mean, that'd this, be this a is, weird argument. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weirder argument to make in the 90s. Like, I could see yeah. why Burnham made it when he yeah, yeah, thought yeah. that there was going to be, like, this grand convergence of all the different forms of, like, bureaucratic society. Yeah, that's to actually kind that, of prescient when mm-hmm. Burnham is talking about it. In the fucking 90s, the ship has already sailed on this form of society. And that really shows in his critique of, you know, cultural massification. Yeah, he basically doesn't think neoliberalism happened. Yeah, he's basically just quoting the one-dimensional man. Like, oh, everyone is just a total conformist. Okay, the 50s, fine. 70s, 80s, 90s? Are you fucking kidding me? Especially reading this in, like, 2020, when, like, differentiation and, like, okay, is there some kind of formal homogenization? Do things come in the same packages? and tend to reinforce a same set of hedonistic values. Okay, I can see that. But in terms of like the content or whatever, like what's being presented, there is very much a reassertion of difference and even things like kinship and heritage that gets interjected in the 80s. And he considers the quote entrepreneurial argument, but he half bakes it. He's like, there's something about the structure of the corporate state that won't go away. 
and the, you know, the nexus of corporate interests that won't go away. Okay, this is true. But he doesn't really get the significance of the breakdown of the Keynesian consensus. This actually does seem like the assumptions of taking Marcuse's critique of Fordism and Keynesianism and wartime capitalism even altogether and like extending it out into the future is a problem that a lot of people who read the Frankfurt School and stuff do actually because they think that that's still relevant. They start calling everything authoritarian. Like, Mm -hmm. and in some ways, yes, everything is authoritarian, but so what? Like, that doesn't mean anything anymore. So, and yes, in a loose sense, everything is conformist, but you conform to a micro niche, not a mass society. That's how this functions now. How capitalism trades to markets. And that should have been obvious in 1995. When Primus is on the radio, that should be obvious, right? But, you know, I'm guessing he wasn't listening to the radio in his little, like, writing bunker or whatever. Anyway. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, like, that seems transparently... Of all the things that seem prescient to now, and like I admit, a lot of some of this does. That one's just like, what? Where are you at? It's an entire read of the cultural sphere is insane. Like, is completely out of touch with how things operate. And the fact that all of those, like, the extremely broad group of people that he lumps into the you know cultural elite category. I mean, it means like literally everyone who, you know, makes like a YouTube video or something in our world, right? You know, to be a little vulgar and like just copy pasta this to our world now. Like everyone who makes a little scroll from like a Twitch stream or a podcast wink or, you know, I don't know, a book, you fucking immigrant. Like anyone there is a cultural elite, right? This only so, works if you staple a race theory under it. So yeah, and which which we can see him doing. So let's get, what's what's, what's the second objection to Burnham? His second objection is the pluralist objection. I'll say right up front, I think this one he's actually right about. So basically that there's enough like conflict between the different sections of managerial elites that they essentially don't form an elite. That's the objection. They're not a singular elite. And I think that's true. I actually think you can explain a whole lot of modern society by that. Right. And like... I mean, I don't know, just uh, to reason by analogy, imagine saying that, you know, the competition between individual bourgeois means that they're not a class or something. The fact that there is like variation and conflict between the sections of the elite doesn't mean there isn't an elite. So, I mean, I don't think that one's that controversial. Like that is mainly people that have caved to the idea that like bourgeois interests is usurped by managerial interests. This is their way of saving, you know, the idea that we're not dominated by, uh, you know, some kind of managerial elite. Is that, well, they don't even like agree on things. And from, you know, a good Marxist theory on state and capital shouldn't get too wrapped up in the fact that state and capital are fighting. Right. Our capital and capital is fighting. There are the capital and capital is fighting. Yeah. This is, Democrats and Republicans shit. Yes, there are different factions in the state. There's different factions in capital. He does take seriously an entrepreneurial versus managerial capitalism kind of thing and claims that it's only the entrepreneurial types that really oppose big state intervention, which is, you know, true to an extent. Entrepreneurial there is really his nice way of saying small bourgeoisie because they don't have enough to have enough employees to be massified. That's all that means. Yeah, if you have a successful company, that's why this is why he gets so mad when Gelbreith says he calls these managerial forms, he calls them mature, right? Is that there's an implied teleology that if you're fucking successful and your thing gets to continue, 
you become managerial. You know, there's an inherent tendency towards this, mm-hmm. that if you let it play out, you will go there to turn to the entrepreneurial objection, right? Is that, you know, there's this new hot entrepreneurial threat that's going to take out the managerial regime, right? It's going to take out the managerial elites. Again, he's right in saying that this is going to be reincorporated, that, you know, Ronald Reagan isn't really a challenge to the corporate state that, you know, under the Reagan administration, that actually got like bigger, like way bigger. But he's missing the enormous economic restructuring underneath this. I don't know. We spend so much time on this show and in the left now talking about what a dramatic and in a way, you know, for the left, like traumatic break from American normalcy, you know, the 70s and the 80s was and the turn in the economy is. The fact that he misses that is incredibly damning and means that even if he did understand something about, you know, the computer revolution, he would still be missing what undermines the managerial state, what undermines the dominance of the political class. Like, uh, I mean, before the show, we were talking about the inability for the state to do anything cogent or coherent about COVID-19 in the school system. It's really hard for me to sit there and just go, oh man, there's that total managerial domination. God, they really have their tentacles and everything in this society. Oh, they wield so much organizational power. Like they're basically claiming they can't make people wear masks. I mean, I guess you could say that this is the resistance to like the managerial domination of society. But later on in the book, when he tries to imagine how you could maybe like reorganize society on a better basis, like it really just sounds like fascism. It's yeah, mean center management, right? Like, and that's fascism. Yeah. If you're not going to organize things on like a technical and like scientific basis, like, yeah, you're just going to basically organize the engine of society on these like irrational myths. <laughs> and like we've seen that before. Like we've yeah. seen that play out. Yeah. These prescriptive institutions, you know, like mm-hmm. you're, you're belonging and, he has all these fun weasel words. Actually, he uses class interest as a weasel word. He takes an Althusserian point about the political construction of class interest and uses it basically to turn it into like a crypto racial dog whistle, which I, I find amazing. And I find to be the logical extension of kind of dissolving a sort of economic read of class interest. Mm-hmm. So like cultural preservation is part of class interest. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I find interesting about this book, though, is he actually says that, that racial nationalism is a dead end because of this massification of society and that it'll never, ever work. But his interest in irrational mythologies to kind of get the center to glue together to fight the Leviathan. I mean, his center is going to be like non-managerial professionals, although given how broad he's defined that, who the hell is that? The petite bourgeoisie, which he calls the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, stuff like that. Okay, not in entertainment because, of course, they would be elites. Of course. Uh, I, say, I have a quote maybe that he says on this where he's like, post-bourgeois ideology must express a solidarism that postulates a collective identity, synthesizing the elements of class, race, nation, and culture, as well as the concrete basis of loyalty and value, and rejecting the cosmopolitanism of the soft regime and its dispersive globalist and egalitarian derivatives. Similarly, post-bourgeois ideology must also express a formula and ethic of asceticism that rationalizes the deferral of gratification, acceptance of sacrifice for the solidarist identity, and a rejection of hedonistic indulgence. Are you guys familiar with the Brazilian integralist? 
You know, I, I know this that. from my, no. my time on the right. So that's Brazilian fascism, but they couldn't be racialist, right? Because Brazilian is a Creole society. There's no right. way to make that a racialist society and it work. So they, they started talking about, you know, the integral, the integrated identity, actually very similar to early, but not late Italian fascism. Okay. Because, because Italian fascism also wanted to avoid the race question. So what I find interesting about this is this indicates to me that his racialism was only partial. I mean, like it's real, but it was partial in that he is picking up on something in Burnham that Burnham says offhand in the new Machiavellians that any myth will do. Like he talks about how in the American 18th century, it was the racial myth that motivated American progress, which is like weirdly honest. So like, I wonder if Francis thought racialism was doomed to fail, but it was a successful operant myth to fight this. And that's why he leaned into it more and more and more over time. When I read this, yeah, there's a lot of crypto rate. I mean, it's structurally racist, but this wasn't published. So it wasn't like he was hiding his, right. His racism for a broad audience. Like, and also this would never have gotten a broad audience in 1995 amongst conservative circles. Mm -hmm. It reads too much like Marxist stuff. I think maybe what he really wants, he wants to basically stoke up the, in-group, out-group dynamic of human psychology for the accomplishment of some kind of meaningful collectivity that can have maybe this like organic, balanced society that's stable. Like that's what he wants. Whatever happens to be at hand is better than nothing. So we'll take that. Well, you see this in like Paul Gottfried, who's Jewish, but also basically Francis's successor in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, you know, he even writes an introduction to this book, I believe, one of the three. Gottfried actually does reject racialism, but was always willing to work with it. And he would appear on like Nazi radio channels and stuff even to unify, to fight management. And I'm wondering if San Francis took it to an even deeper extent than that. That reminds me so much of like the Nick Land's engagement with Herman Hoff, right? And the mm-hmm. white nationalist is identity politics and identity politics is for losers. You want to have your child to have the same face as you. I want to have face tentacles, that kind of shit. Right. It's very um, similar you know, we can play those people and that doesn't mean I'm not open to racial shit. <laughs> I mean, I think land probably buys into racial shit more than it sounds like Gottfried does. And Gottfried is, is more aware that it's a myth and perhaps Francis is just sort of running with it. I mean, he, he would like his own group to be dominant, but he probably doesn't really believe in objective white supremacy. He just like, well, you know, I miss these bourgeois values. I miss these waspy values. Yeah. And right. so like, how do we get that? When you read this, when you read when you read the entirety of the book, he's basically like you need the entrepreneurs and the disenfranchised middle professionals and the increasingly proletarianized petite bourgeoisie to join together, kind of in a Republican Party style coalition, to be honest, behind mm-hmm. some kind of vague identity to beat the shit out of management. When you look at, say, like the Alex Jones strategy, with the exception of attacking executives, it is right. pretty much the stupid form of this. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, that's what a lot of like modern right wing Trump era ideology is like a dumb version of this. Again, like he starts this project, I think, because he basically wants a theoretical basis to do a right wing version of Gramsciism or what they perceive Gramsci does culturally or what they perceive like this class of managers as doing to undermine the stable classical virtues of civilization and ruining the West or whatever. Even goes into education, like education is designed to create people with this management ideology, and that's how it reproduces. And all these antagonisms with all these dispossessed groups are just basically being stirred up 
by management in order to destabilize like the bourgeois values of society. The most vulgar version of it, yeah, is like George Soros is funding Black Lives Matter, but it's the same mindset. Yeah. And you sit that in these deep state theories of versus Trump, like the QAnon mindset, which seems so objectively insane. If you look at this idea that the middle is more of a threat than the top, then it kind of makes sense. Now, I do want to go to like Eric Olin Wright's observation about this stuff. He wasn't talking about San Francis, obviously, but he was talking about the way most people experience class because he always said, well, Marxists don't talk enough about domination. And this is why you hate your immediate manager, even though they have very little, they don't have that much more power than you, than your boss. And like, even in my own life, when I was very, very poor, right? I always thought like basically middle-class people with big houses were rich. Mm -hmm. They were not, you know, they were not even six figures, but like, when you're coming from a household of five forty thousand dollars a year in the late nineties, and then you see like a household of three at eighty thousand dollars a year, it seems like such a big lifestyle jump that you can hardly comprehend it. And so you resent that probably more than you resent the Bill Gates because that that's so off scale. Or even like the more invisible capitalists that you never see. Even like the Bill Gates or the Steve Job types, at least they're put up as these figures who are like innovators who are leading civilization forward through like advancing technology, even you know, right. that's all you know, bullshit. But like you don't see like the invisible set of investors and financiers and yeah, even like more technocratic management. That's the real rich people and they're off yeah. in their own fucking world. And you also don't really see generational wealth anymore because they know how to diffuse their wealth enough that you don't see them on the Forbes top 10 list, even though they're probably richer than Bill Gates and Bezos just as a family, not as an individual. And that's the kind of shit, you know, that this stuff can really miss. But yeah, you're completely right. And so like, I get how this theory would have a visceral appeal. And, you know, honestly, one of the things that I've been both interested in and concerned about is like some of these things I think are real and like you need a finer parse to talk about it. You need like C. Wright Mills and Eric Owen Wright and like more complicated class schema than just the bourgeois proletariat peasant class schema that we all, you know, on Marxist mm-hmm. circles kind of beat off to, yeah. which is true, but it's so broad. It doesn't explain a whole lot. I think one of the things I worry about with, particularly with the way PMC is increasingly being used from Aaron Reich is it sneaks a lot of this stuff in without realizing it's doing it. It's big in DSA discourse mm-hmm. uh, because it's like a live question, especially if you're dealing with the Democratic Party. But do you think that's also maybe a part and parcel of maybe the kind of socially conservative elements in mm-hmm. the whole DSA orbit right now? Yeah, yeah. Yes. 100%. Like the workerist shit that's pushing this like anti-woke stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Because like they're kicking back against the cosmopolitan <laughs> ideology of the elites. That's, you know, shoving all this, you know, political correctness down our throat. I do see this thing where it's like young adrift, like urban millennials opining on like social media, how they kind of like are longing for the trad life or whatever. It's like a reaction, maybe kind of like to the alienation or whatever that they're feeling in this particular situation. But it's almost like an even higher form of alienation. One of the reasons why this is so pernicious, but also effective is we have to admit, for example, that a lot of woke political correct stuff is cultural capital mongering. It really oh, yeah. is. Like, there's no way around that. I mean, yeah, you're, you're not going to get any <laughs> any opposition to that here. Right. Like, the safe space, Derek. But at the same time, like, this anti-woke stuff, it goes in this direction so fast. When you hear a lot of these workers talks, you're like, well, you realize that, like, the working class is not the white working class or the black working class or the Latino working class or 
the trans working class or the gay working class. It's all those things. Yeah, it's like it's, it's yeah. not a monolithic entity, and that's the <laughs> puzzling fucking thing. Is that it's like the '60s and '70s where that really becomes like a hot issue. Right. This book completely misses out on that. It misses out on the death to a thousand cuts of the big worker smashing a hammer identity. You're looking for some kind of, yeah, like image ideal, a worker, right? Sometimes it takes the form of the regular ass person or the normie or whatever. Sure. And, you know, I don't know if that's just like a failure of imagination or just something that people kind of default to because we think in like an imagistic way, but that's a trap. You know, the working class is not monolithic. It It is shifting. And yeah, I think like Marxists, we do have to look at the way that class dynamics shift, you know, within the proletariat, within the bourgeoisie, but without searching for like this mythical figure because we're so alienated of like the regular ass worker that we can reach out to who is untainted by any of this bullshit cultural stuff or identity politics, whatever. That person doesn't exist. Like we're all in the same stew. We're all saturated, like in the same bullshit. Right. Well, I, I think what people are trying to get at is, you know, people that don't sit around and think about their powerlessness to stop capitalism all day. Like, right. and like people that are a little less alienated and a little more integrated with the form of society that actually exists. But if we actually did sociological studies on like the working class, for example, particularly if you actually look at worker workers as opposed to just people in the reserve army of labor. It's multiracial and it's slightly more female and probably the largest part of it is single mothers. And when I hear mm-hmm, workerist, mm-hmm. I'm not hearing that. Like, yeah. like, yeah, no, 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 that's right. If you were talking about like, you know, dealing with child rearing amongst single mothers on the left, like that would be a legitimate thing that we would need to do. That's considered a sectional interest. That's not, you know what I mean? Like that's, uh, that's <laughs> it's, it's really... It's true, though. I, mean, I know, but that's like maddening because that's yeah. like that's the most obvious thing where we fail. Like where I see the the workerist critique, right? Like yeah. we don't deal with families very much. I mean, not even nuclear families. Just like usually, women with kids. Frankly, that's statistically most likely what you're going to have. Right. So, like, that's a real issue. Why is that a sectional? In- I mean, like, why is that a divisional it- interest? I mean, it's in the, at least in the DSA circles, they'll fold that under like Medicare for all or whatever. Like we need, I don't know if like universal childcare is the most controversial issue, even amongst those types. I mean, no, no, it's not, not but, but like, how do you organize people without dealing with it? That's where I'm more interested. Right. Like, yeah. like when you talk about this stuff and you're like, well, yeah, our policies will fix this. Well, y- your policies don't exist yet. So honestly, I've heard people just around generally people organizing things like trying to have considerations for childcare. I of think course. it is something that people are kind of, at least I'm in my kind of anecdotal experience, it's something that people are kind of conscious so of. So the, the DSA tries to deal with it. The problem is the DSA, as I've experienced it, is way more male than it should demographically be. Well, I'm not just um, talking about DSA. Like I'm just other local things I've noticed. That, you know, right. People... I know like the Philly Socialists actually deal with it pretty well. So I, I, I realize it's not, but my, my point about that is like when Lash was talking about the problem with college activists in the 50s is they wrote all this stuff off. Right. Like, because I'm thinking about Christopher Lash because he was writing about this time period. And it is weird to me, Esri, that if you read this book, it's like you look at the stuff in 65 and you jump to 1995 and somehow the intervening years are just gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and he's read Lash. He's citing Lash. Yeah. He's what? read Lash. He's what? read. What's the deal there? Like, what? <laughs> who in the, in the mid 90s is like, God, this culture of conformity is so oppressive. You know, like Gen X is ascendant. Like, I don't know. 
I mean, look, Lash does have some similar theories mm. about about the intellectual radicals uh, adjacent to the bourgeois class that he writes about, which he sees as like an upper middle class problem. Um, sure, and how they're not really like challenging, you know? Yeah, how, how they're not. They actually they look to be challenging it, but they're actually justifying things post facto. Which I, I, I'm actually kind of sympathetic to. I think Lash is right about that. Frankly, I'm, 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 like he, I'm very he, sympathetic to that, but like. Uh, God, who are these right-wing theorists looking to the left in the winter of the left's discontent in the mid-90s and being like, God, I wish we had what they had. Yeah, I mean, like, the Soviet, the Soviet unions failed. They're all in disarray. No one's a Marxist anymore. Let's go talk about how awesome all those Man, Marxist theories were. I'm so jealous what, of, all well, that, of what all those Marxists have. Well, I mean, it's, the same, it's the same shit now. It's the same reason they point at like, somebody being like, there's too many titties in video games. They're like, this is a triumph of cultural Marxism. Right, like, yeah, how, yeah. how do they do it? How do they do it? Well, William right. Lynn, the guy who rebranded Judeo-Bolshevik's conspiracy or cultural Bolshevism into cultural Marxism, was in the same orbit as Sam Francis. Like, they wrote in the same journals. Of, mm. uh, I've been mentioning both Michael and William Lind. William Lind's a reactionary. Michael Lind's a centrist for, for people. They're not the same person. Um, and they're not related. But so this is this is where you get into like the like the Marcuse or maybe you know the mm-hmm, critical mm-hmm. theorist section where it's like we're all <laughs> these people too are all so immersed into basically pop culture and the fucking the matrix and the simulation yep. and all that stuff that that's the shit they care about the most. It's the cultural stuff where they feel the most humiliated and dominated. Right. right. Well, it's interesting to me because also like this is not true for Francis, but a lot of these other figures like Paul Godfrey was Marcuse's student. And that's actually like part of how like he got tangentially involved with Richard Spencer, who was writing a thesis on Adorno. You sometimes wonder if like they do believe their Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy stuff and they're jealous. <laughs> that is the vibe that I get because of how hard this goes off the rails with cultural elites. There's almost no way to explain the gap in his theory and how far he misses the mark. Because he's actually, you know, he's, he's quite perceptive about corporate elites and government elites and how their bureaucratic formations are actually more alike than they are different. And it, this guy, the image that this kept bringing to mind, like, I guess the ideal archetype that he's railing against that kept popping into my head was Michael Eisner. Right. Like, that's the guy he hates. You know, Disney, it was this entrepreneurial company run by the vision of one man. And then now it's basically taken over by this technocrat who has built the business by expanding it and massifying it further and further and further, requiring more specialists. And it's culturally liberal. You know, like they have gays at Disneyland. There's like a cold day for them. They're supporting Democrats and all these, you know, that's the politics that he's sussing out. And that's what really explains it for him. That's the framework. Yeah, we miss the days of Walt having to be really pushed to not send Mickey Mouse cartoons to Hitler, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, not to disparage Disney, but to disparage Disney, there's a pretty dark history there. I mean, and it's funny to me because also this is also the same time period where I knew a whole lot of like people on the cultural left who were just disgusted by Disney's like normativity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so like, it's so interesting. It's like when you focus on this cultural stuff, you almost always see the other side winning. Yeah. Well, the, Disney, Disney is one of the things that the far left and the far right can actually... That's one of the things we totally agree on. Yeah, Disney sucks. Carl Weathers handshake. Yeah. <laughs> the other interesting thing about this is you don't see any appeals that you did in the late aughts that have gone away. But even like sometimes Zizek would joke about it, about the far right and the far left teaming together to destroy the center. 
which was management. Mm, right. That is absent from this. That comes up later during the Bush years and then it has disappeared now. You know, that's what I was thinking about when he's talking about the dematerialization of property. And I was thinking about what Baudrillard said about Stalinism and use value and how they get obsessed with, you know, reasserting the primacy of use value. I mean, you know, Marx in a way is super prescient, right? He's looking at this very material process and being like, oh shit, this is just getting more and more ghost-like. I bet you money will just be like digits someday. He's already postulating how like ghostly things can become. He's already thinking about finance. He has the groundwork for thinking about intellectual property. Those developments are actually quite early, but the fact that they, you know, would one day predominate, I mean, escapes everyone writing back then. Marx, like least of all though. By the time we're in the 90s thinking about dematerialization of property, which first of all, okay, called that one. That's just deepened. That just got more and more true. But focusing so much on dematerialization of property misses how much intellectual property rentiers are like small proprietarians. Rentier stuff is not the same as like production and industrial capital, right? But small proprietarians have a rhyming logic. Honestly, the biggest entrepreneurial sector right now is in the cultural sector. Yeah. Because and, it has the least overhead. Like, and, and it has a viable and believable rentier model that doesn't seem super exploitative. And look at yeah. you know who that tends to represent. I mean, it, I, look, yeah, it's leftist. It's liberal, right? But it's really not people that are extremely hostile to property as such. <laughs> right. It's people that are like pretty friendly. I don't know. You look at the top Patreons, right? I'm not saying I would love this, but you, you don't really see any like hard tankies going for, you know, forced collectivization there, or, you know, anti well, you, you did for a little while though. On the sure. on the top of Oh, not on top, but on top of like left Patreon you did. I'm talking about just in, in general, like the, the marketplace of ideas. Out oh there. no, like like Chapo it, is about as left as you're gonna get. Yeah, right? Chapo and like ContraPoints, but they're all like sock dems. You right. know what I mean? Some of that is like explicitly anti-revolutionary. I guess, uh, what, what do you have? There's a uh, last podcast on the left, I suppose. I don't actually know their politics. They were libertarians and they moved left wing, which is actually a trend in the podcast. Like as podcasts have moved from libertarian to left wing, a lot of podcasters have moved from libertarian to left wing. Strange that is. But yeah, like, I don't know. I could imagine a version of this theory that's thinking about like, and you know, a modern version of this theory would talk about you know, a sort of managerial, like how they lean into difference in order to undercut their competition, you know, and how the viciousness of the competition makes them look like they have no interests in common. Right. And another thing he gets disastrously wrong is that, you know, it's like he's stuck in, and I mean, I guess he is stuck in the, you know, the new left days where, you know, these intellectuals are super pro free speech and super anti-censorship. They're super pluralist. What we have today, I mean, the people that whine the most about free speech and pluralism and that sort of thing are, <laughs> are you know, the ones upholding a trad bourgeois and prescriptive values, you might say. But like, I don't know, really? Like cultural production is super anti-censorship now? Like the managerial cultural elite is super anti-censorship now? I mean, they, they might be pro-censorship in order to enable pluralism or something, or I don't know, you could kind of jerry-rig that, but like that new left heritage of being like opposing censorship is totally lost. I'd be hesitant to die on that hill 
Um, no, no, that, that's a tweak that you just have to look like you can look at the different media landscape and who is affecting. Because the other thing yeah. is you got like Sam Francis is a Smithian through and through. Mm-hmm. He would say, of course, they they were pro pluralism when they were more plural. But now that they've congealed and they have even more hegemonic power, they're going to be anti pluralistic. I mean, you know, that's Kevin McDonald's whole thing. Like, mm-hmm. right. who's, you know, that anti-Semitic stuff. But it is interesting how much he misses. But I mean, it's also interesting that most of most of the leftists he's citing are from the 70s. He's not citing leftists that would have been particularly relevant in 1995. A lot of the names that you and I are throwing around are more relevant now from the 70s than they were in 1995. Yeah, it's because no leftist was relevant in 1995. <laughs> I mean, we would have been citing Foucault and Baudrillard and... Sure, yeah. The postmodernist turn, we would have been citing Chomsky, we would have been citing um, Michael Alberts, maybe on the far left. I mean, this rhymes a lot with Foucault and even a little with Chomsky, honestly, um, in terms of manufacturing consent and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and Jake and I are watching Adam Curtis's Century of the Self. Right. You know, and the development of the managerial regime. Like, this really does rhyme a lot with that stuff. Part of it, it was the spirit of the age. Um, part of it is the projected proof. But he's also citing stuff that would have been out of sync with the time. So it doesn't surprise me that he's using this to drive points where it seems like he's just skipping. Maybe this is a good place to end on it. Going back to this being written in 1995, aside from the racial tensions, this would have seemed like from outer space. Mm. Even more than it does now. Right. Because like James Burnham had been largely forgotten about. How many Marxists did you meet, even in academia? I did not know academic Marxists in the late 90s, early aughts. Like, I didn't. Like, I mean, I knew they existed, but I never met any. And I met some of the anti-war movement, and that was it. Yes, as far as I knew, I mean, when I, even in the later 90s, when I was absurdly young, the only Marxists that exist were Rage Against the Machine. Right. Yeah. Consummate cultural elites. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely fits in terms of explaining the kind of politics of like Clinton Bush too, mm-hmm. but like who was looking for that <laughs> at the time? So, and and to me, in some way, this is very prescient and interesting, but it's also like what it misses is huge, and I get why he didn't publish it because no one would have touched this book in 1995. Yeah, not to put you on the spot, Derek, but if you look this book up on Goodreads or Amazon.com you'll see a uh, <laughs> five-star review from a uh, top reviewer in graphic novels named C. Derek Barn. Um, yeah. Talking about how this, you know, presages the racialized uh, revolt against cosmopolitan elites that is channeled in the Trump administration. Right. One of the interesting things about Trumpism is Trumpism is not paleoconservatism, but it's the closest thing we've had to it in power since the 1920s before it would have been called paleoconservatism. And what do I mean by that? Paleoconservatism is pro-tariff. It can be particularly nasty on foreign policy in some ways, but it's anti-war. This idea of focusing on the deep state and this inner management. What Trump did was take these things that I've seen in paleoconservative and weird conspiracy culture worlds, which are not necessarily the same thing, and combine them together in a very weirdly political viable way that when I saw in, in 2015, I'm like, well, this might stand more of a chance than people think. Because neoconservatism was so completely discredited by the Bush years. And I remember even, you know, growing up in Georgia, there are a whole lot of people who were flirting with, like, Ron Paulism. But Ron Paulism didn't go anywhere mm. either. Yeah, the anti-war stuff has some cachet, but, like, no one's going to put our currency back on the gold standard. Yeah, that's crank shit. 
Right. So like this anti-immigration tariff pseudo industrial policy stuff that's actually also still kind of post neoliberal. It's not not neoliberal, but it's not quite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a turn towards like fiscal it's, policy. Like you're right. How do you, how do you describe it? Like because monetary policy was dominant. This is also something he gets wrong, by the way, is that he talks entirely in terms of stimulating aggregate demand as being one of the main tools of the managerial regime. He refers to monetary policy, but if you're only talking about stimulating aggregate demand, then you're not talking about fucking monetary policy, which is mainly focused on the money supply. But anyway. No, he misses the fiscalization of demand-side economics, actually. I mean, he basically thought the managerial would have been all under-consumptionist, that we just need to consume more. Right. Um, Which actually does make sense from, like, you know, a litmus test of 1995. Makes no sense now. But I don't know if that was like a great read of of the 90s economy. That was the sort of reflection of the times, but that's a sort of Fordist kind of conception of what was happening. The whole thing seems stuck. It's the great society period that he's most concerned with. The aggregate demand also with planned obsolescence, which was a thing that really became a big deal in the 70s. Like it makes sense if you look at the leftist he's citing too. Like he basically seems to think the 90s is the 70s redux. And to me, like he's off by two decades. Yeah. And then this was published two decades later. Right. Yeah. It's published when it actually is more apt than when it was actually written. (laughs) Like for cyclical reasons. <laughs> if you read this in 1995, I think you would have thought most of it was wrong. Right. I will say though, if Trump is the embodiment of this revolt against managerialism and you know, he's the tribune of like those <laughs> petty bourgeois and lumpen elements, it has not resulted in an ethic of asceticism that <laughs> rationalizes deferral of gratification, acceptance of sacrifice for the solidarist identity. And a rejection oh, of hedonistic no, indulgence. Not. No, no, <laughs> at it, all. It more resembles the Caesarism that he was talking about, where a managerial elite uh, gins up a bunch of the so-called underclass. What he is supposedly afraid of, and his cure, is almost the same. Thing. Right. It, it, in fact, if you look at like what the Trumpist argument, it is they are doing what they accuse the other side of doing. They're projecting. Like, like what else is Trump but like the most potent? expression of the uh excretion of the managerial system that would have had no place in a you know protestant productive capital thing i mean he upsets so many of like old guard republicans not just you know the neocons but he also proves that wasps are dead because like the evangelicals having to and becoming more and more devoted to him actually one of the things that my friend Danny Anderson over at the Sectarian Review has pointed out is like, no, evangelicals have become more devoted to Trump, not because it's his ideas have become more popular, but because all the non-Trumpists have just left. Like they've gone to other forms of religion. I'm telling you, Q is going to be the national religion in like 50 years. Like we're <laughs> seeing the birth of it in real time. If there ever is a person who comes out and claims Q, it'll have Joseph Smith like possibility. That's like, high praise. I mean, what I will say about Sam Francis is, you know, I, I talked to you guys about Rothbart in like the more socially acceptable far right and then like the weirdo far right, like, mm-hmm. you know, Evola and Dugan. Francis is at the crux of that. Yeah. Francis has real connections to actual power and also was, you know, at the end of his life associated with fringy weirdos. That's to me why this kind of text is also pertinent because the fringy elements of paleoconservatives, i.e., Steve Miller, 
you know. Not that Steve Miller, Space Cowboy, Gangster of Love. Was it you and like all these radio references this episode? Like- I don't know. <laughs> White people have to have, you know, more different names. So they don't all sound like Wham and Steve Miller Band. Like, it's not my fault. I thought I was a dad rock expert. Sorry. By the way, one of the other things that kind of proves Esri's point is Steve Miller's Jewish. But anyway. <laughs> um but like Steve Miller, even more than Bannon, is close to this world. And when you think about the fact that Pat Buchanan was always able to go on Fox News. My dad used to watch McLaughlin Group every week. Right. I saw yeah. Pat Buchanan every week. Robert Spencer worked for Amcon. I mean, like, so there. Richard Spencer? I'm kidding. All these waspy yeah. names that are the same. Okay. Yeah. Richard Spencer. <laughs> um, Richard Spencer was uh, assistant editor for Amcon in the mid-aughts. I mean, so like. I think he did get booted for being too extreme, mm-hmm. but you know, Amcon weirdly is usually the, you know, even I cite it. Like it's usually like the conservative magazine that people on the left feel okay citing. Cause it's generally anti-war. You might say the gold standard. Yeah. <laughs> so when you look at that pipeline, Francis is a good figure. Francis was close to people like George Michael and adjacently William Buckley and stuff. So he wasn't just, you know, a weirdo in a bad fitting Brooks Brothers suit. Right. This is the link between Pat Buchanan and Nick Land. Yeah. And there is one. And Pat Buchanan's the link between the neoconservatives and like George Wallace. I mean, like, there are all these bridge figures that might have wild ideas and at the end of their lives are largely discredited. Joe Sobrin's another one. And sometimes I say very prescient stuff, partly because they're kind of exiled from popular conservatism. It's one of the things that I've learned is like Main Street conservatives almost never say anything interesting, but people leaning center or leaning further right actually do tend to say things interesting, but they're mm-hmm. kicked out of the discourse immediately. You know who I think is a figure like this we're going to see in the future? Who's that? Michelle Mockin, who mm. was a neoconservative who's increasingly become, even though she's not white, in this paleoconservative, very far right, quasi racialist sphere. Mm. I think we're going to see like. There are figures who are not as obviously Nazi-esque and also a joke, you know, like Richard Spencer, who are moving in this direction, who are not that far from power. They've just fallen out of popular conservative circles. They're not necessarily Trumpers either. Um, Some of them are, some of them aren't. The white nationalists right now are mad at Trump and like supporting Biden or something. It's actually kind of hilarious. That's the vote they're courting. I totally (laughs) to me, honestly. Right. <laughs> um, you know, what's kind of funny is that um, the only segment of the new left that Sam Francis says reached outside of the managerial sphere. And by the way, we've been saying like elite because he doesn't quite think of them as constituting a class. We didn't really right. pick up on this, but that they have the potential for being a class, which if they have this kind of level of domination over society, I have no idea. I think actually he's right. I think he's right, but it doesn't make sense with his theory. Right. Like, like I think I think he's right there. Like management is not a class, but has the potential maybe to be a class in the far future. But like but, but if they've wrestled their interests if they can tell the bourgeoisie what to do. Right. Like, yeah. How is that not a class? Like he, he just he doesn't have this sense, you know, that the a middle class of a society and this is something Marx is good at, right? Like even though he has the proletarian like bourgeois thing going on, that the reason that those things are important is that they're the only two like generalizable class interests in the society. Yeah. You can't have a fucking managerial society. Like I think the USSR really tells us not that, Oh yeah, look, here's a managerial society. It's fine. 
you know, the managerial state doesn't actually work without capitalism underneath it to manage. That's why his under digestion of Nazism really matters, you know, and just wedging together totalitarianism. He's kind of right that the Soviet Union, aside from the obvious, like has a lot of continuity with like the czarist state and, you know, doesn't really get rid of its prescriptive elites and an actual like bourgeoisie doesn't get to develop, of course, until, you know, until it does. But he's sort of wrong in copy pasting that dynamic onto Nazi Germany. You think someone like him would know better than this, that the Nazis were much more bourgeois friendly than they were to like, say, the Junkers. Right. That's something I think he gets from Burnham. And I think also when Burnham is a little bit more of an excuse because Burnham is really more interested in Italy where okay. the dynamics are actually slightly different. Like, yeah, the, the dynamics are more like Leninism in Italy at first. Yeah. Right. And the concessions to capital are later, whereas, you know, like, Strasser was liquidated pretty damn quickly. <laughs> like, Hitlerism was wiping the socialist part of that out really fast and early. And yeah, I mean, like, Francis should know that. He probably does. He's just got no interest yeah. to point it out. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I get the sense that he's got to ha- just be putting his cards close to his chest there. There's no way he doesn't fucking know that. And I guess that's like the rub here, right? Is that much like with the Murray Rothbard episode, we're seeing someone who has racist views coquette with this Marxist form of expression. At least Murray Rothbard was doing it like 15 years before. You know, it's kind of questionable to do this in the mid 90s. But that's what we're dealing with here. You know, a racialist figure who stops believing in the strategy of racial nationalism and is playing with Marxist language in order to try to articulate something that sounds much more like materialist and serious. But unlike Rothbard, this just doesn't make sense without the racist premises. Right. Like Rothbard sees racialism as useful, right? What I can't figure out actually is racialism Sam Francis's actual goal or is it his myth for something else? Does he believe I, in white supremacy or not? My guess is that he's basically genuinely conservative. That's mm-hmm. his disposition. And he's looking for a force that can embody the values that he sees as necessary for a durable and prosperous civilization. And so that's why you get all this projection onto the bourgeoisie, all this stuff, Mm. like as if the bourgeoisie wasn't the class that liquidated like stable previous forms of like society and more all the solid melts into air. Like that's what happens. And so you get that weird projection, but it could be the bourgeoisie. It could be anything, anything that would help to foster those values socially broadly and counteract the cosmopolitanism hedonism and materialism he sees in late capitalist society yeah but what he really wants is this weird like it's really more like late prescriptive you know it's not like especially bourgeois he what he objects to i can't stop thinking in terms of formal and real subsumption right like he likes it when capitalism first starts but then when it reconfigures society he gets sad yeah as if that's not an imminent tendency well, at the end, he's very pessimistic. Like He basically says that bourgeois order was an abortive civilization and that the bourgeoisie basically failed to meet the challenges of mass and scale. Mm-hmm. And so they were replaced by the soft managerial regime. And so I kind of get the impression that he wants some kind of hard managerial regime. That's exactly what he wants. That's what, what Matthias Vassar and I, when we did the podcast on this from Symptomatic Redness a year ago, that's what we came to conclusion through from reading the whole book. He wants 
a hard managerial machine that is vaguely racialist, but maybe can get past that because racial nationalism doesn't work enough. He wants like Nazism without Nazism. Right? Yeah. Uh, how much of this new far right stuff is just that? Like you look right. at Nick Land, Nazism without racialism, but with like Cthulhu based and like I'll tolerate racialism. but That's not what I want. You look at Dugan. Eurasianism plus some national identifying spirit plus everything against liberalism plus the spiritual well-being of orthodox civilization, but like fashy. It's even there with the like assertion that the soft managerial regime can't deal with violence because violence evokes these prescriptive values that this managerial regime can't deal with. Well, they're subject to the slave morality. And they basically right. weaponize it against the noble Aryan right. bourgeois order. Right. I mean, exactly. He goes as far to say that the Reagan doctrine of funding anti-communist insurgents merely recapitulated and to a large extent extended the hedonistic and cosmopolitan manipulative techniques of the regime. Anti-communist subversion is just the last gasp of the bourgeoisie adopting managerial tactics. Well, it, like... it, wasn't, well, it wasn't violent enough. And the Reagan administration was to chicken shit to do like full sustained violence. Yeah. And so what we need to do to dislodge the soft managerial regime, the only thing it's really vulnerable to, the only like concrete advice he has that it's vulnerable to violence and right. having to deal with violence that it doesn't like cracking down. But that's and, laughable if you look at anything in the history of the 20th century American state. What the yeah. fuck are you talking about? Yep. You know what? The actual like managers that have any power, especially politically, do not like to acknowledge that their system runs on violence, but they will do it in a heartbeat, long, yeah. hard for as long as they need to. Look at George Bush Sr., right? Yeah, he goes on TV and like waxes nostalgic about the Waltons and, you know, just the most like corn fed bullshit. But behind the scenes, he was running fucking CIA ops his entire fucking career. To me, it's also funny writing this in 1995, given Ruby Ridge, Waco. You're going to tell me that those milquetoast center moderates are not capable of violence? They haven't really used it much since then, but not because they're incapable of violence, but because they're afraid of the counterviolence they're going to have to deal with, and they'd just rather not. And I guess in some sense that is true, but it's also selective because one of the things I talk about with state violence, like you see, like it is not true that police don't fuck with Nazis and shit. They do even though when they're in them, what is more interesting is like, they're more afraid of Nazis. Really? A, there's an overlap within the force so they're afraid they'll lose some of their own people. But B, also like, they tend to have more weapons and stuff. But when they really want to crack down on them, they'll crack down on them. I mean, like, even in the 80s, like, move happened. <laughs> like, you tell me these people aren't okay with violence, even internal to the United States. Yeah, they bombed <laughs> Pennsylvania. Like they bombed like a, a whole block in Pennsylvania. Uh, we should we should probably wrap things up. Yeah, we're hit, hit, we're approaching the hard limit. Approaching the hard limit, we far surpassed our soft limit with the violence of continued discourse and managerial domination. So uh, promote our Patreon. It's a massifying discourse that overwrites all prescriptive values and. Uh, sexual norms help us undermine the noble values of the bourgeois elite yeah yeah Spread to our patreon that's right we are um cultural elites paving over your personality and replacing it with collective interest as was laid down by Gramsci when he drafted the protocols of the elders of Zion. but anyway yeah <laughs> and see Derek varn you helped thank you yeah thanks for coming on man that's fine that's it for this chat 
Thanks again to Gravesend Commissar for commissioning this episode. Not One Step Back episodes like this one are made possible by Bonapartists like you. For the next week only, episodes are available on Patreon for $10 a month for six months. Starting January 1st, that pops up to $25 a month for each 10 pages you want us to read. That money's not just going to help pay my rent, but it will also help us pay editors. Thanks to Stevie for the first pass on this one. Go to patreon.com slash swampsidechats and keep us going strong through 2021. For ways to support us that cost zero dollars a month, like our pages on social media, share episodes with the people in your life won't shut the fuck up about politics, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our sister podcasts, From Alpha to Omega, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. Visit emancipation.network for more. Next up, the exciting conclusion to our reorienting wellness series on Adam Curtis's Century of the Self. After that, we'll read a mid-90s book on Marx and nationalism with the fam, then dive headfirst into every single one of our custom episode requests in our grueling first half of 2021, not one step back, march to the finish. A huge thank you to everyone who's paid and hasn't got one yet. It's coming soon. We promise. As this wild card year comes to a close, we humbly ask you to join us in reciting the Swampside Mantra until our collective blood pressure, but hopefully not our blood oxygen, drops a little bit. Keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.